Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. So over the last three years, we've tracked about $70 billion of funding in this space, and about 80% of dollars deployed are in energy, food and land use, and, and transportation. And the reality is that is where a significant amount of emissions in our economy lie, but sectors specifically like industrials and the built environment, which make up the second or third largest lever of emissions in our economy, are historically underinvested and underinnovated in. Hey, everyone. If you're interested in venture investing in climate tech, you probably already know about CTVC. As you'd guess, CTVC stands for Climate Tech Venture Capital. It began as a side hustle and small newsletter and now reaches over 40,000 people. In my opinion, there's really no better source of data and insights around climate tech investing. In this episode, I sit down with CTVC co-founder Kim Zhou. Kim was an investor at Energy Impact Partners and has been following the climate tech investment space closely as it's taken off in the past several years. In fact, Kim might have actually been the person who coined the term climate tech. Beyond that bold claim, there's a lot to learn about the state of climate tech investing in this interview. We talked about how CTVC got started, how climate tech has grown in recent years, where that investment is coming from and going to, how the economic slowdown has affected things, and a bunch more. So buckle up and enjoy. Kim, welcome to Investing in Climate. So glad to have you here today. So excited to be here. Climate and investing, my two favorite topics. Awesome. Uh, well, we've got so much to talk about. Uh, it sounds like you're in New York, uh, getting chilly over there. Have you been traveling much? I was in Houston last week for the Greentown Summit and a little Houston clean tech innovation roadshow, and then came back to New York this week. Enjoy. Love New York in the fall. So we've got a lot to talk about. I'd love to first provide a bit of context of where you're coming from and, and the roles that you're wearing. You person that wears several different hats. Let's first hear about CTVC. What is it and how did it get started? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess it ties a bit into my my personal story as well. So back in 2019, I had been always really focused on wanting to address the climate crisis and was personally figuring out and navigating, you know, where within my career I wanted to to spend time and find a way to work on it full time. So ended up going down more of the business and, and finance rabbit hole somehow, took a class on sustainable finance and investing pretty early on in college and realized finance and capital is extremely relevant and critical lever when it comes to addressing the climate crisis. 
And so ended up going down the typical investment banking path, spent some time at JP Morgan, part of their tech M&A team. And while I was there, uh, actually in San Francisco, was just kind of bombarded with everything that is Silicon Valley and technology, all of the billboards of all the different apps to download. And so really kind of came to the the second realization that, you know, innovation and technology is, is critical to disrupting all these markets like the internet, like e-commerce, why not also the climate crisis? Obviously, there was clean tech back in the early 2000s. Towards the end of 2019, it started to feel like there was this reemergence of clean tech and the new shape and form of climate tech. Personally, just started going down that rabbit hole a bunch, was reading things like Axios Parada and Fortune Term Sheet and just identifying all the deals in those newsletters that looked and felt like climate tech and started just tracking it in my free time, which eventually became CTVC, the newsletter. This was at the start of 2020, really as a way to kind of track and, and share what's happening in the climate tech ecosystem before it was officially called Climate Tech. So that's really where it be- all began was just a newsletter, you know, personally in my free time, wanting to understand what's happening in climate tech and, and sharing it with others in the world. And now, fast forward two and a half, three years later, we're at 40,000 subscribers across investors, corporates and operators who are all reading this on a day-to-day basis and yeah, have a few exciting announcements building off of that now. But that that was really the genesis of it. Amazing. I didn't know that you possibly can lay claim to coining the term climate tech, you know, for the purpose of this podcast, we'll say it was all you. (laughs) But very cool that you're at least ahead of the curve and starting to to see that it is broader than what clean tech was. And we'll dive into that in a bit. But you're also running CTVC alongside of a full time job as an investor. So how's that going? Has it been hard to keep up with both the research and analysis needs of CTVC as well as the deal sourcing and due diligence of your role as an investor? And are you finding flywheels that make these two pursuits synergistic or is your life just total chaos? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And one that actually came to an answer a few months ago. So to continue the story, started CTVC back at the beginning of 2020. Few weeks into it, met this woman, Sophie Purdom, realized both of us actually have a lot of synergies between our backgrounds being in climate, both starting sustainable investing funds in college. And then she had also spent some time helping start Kula Bio, which is a fertilizer startup. And so the two of us kicked off working together on the newsletter at the beginning of 2020. Pretty soon after, I joined a venture fund myself called Energy Impact Partners, which is now, I think, three billion assets under management. And works really closely with utilities, real estate operators, transportation companies to invest across the climate tech spectrum. And yeah, spent about two years there also running and building CTVC part-time, which in a lot of ways was synergistic, would do a deep dive on, on cement, for example. And a few of the companies we talked to and interviewed there actually went on to to look at more more seriously from a diligence perspective. But for the most part, wanted to kind of keep separate, you know, church and state, so to speak. CTVC was always meant to be a very neutral third-party resource and a source on climate innovation without having it tied to any sort of investment fund. So that was really always the core of CTVC is we want to accelerate climate innovation. We want to grow the pie. We want to make it free and available to all and have that be really a third-party kind of, have it be a third-party source reporting on what's happening and how to think about it. And so fast forward to, you know, earlier this summer, personally just reached this inflection point where 
I was spending a lot more time on the road. Investing is definitely a full-time job and, and the market has been pretty crazy in climate tech over the last few years. And I really enjoyed the investing day-to-day. I really enjoyed the newsletter day-to-day, but just was starting to think a lot about what should my next step look like. And so actually in June, um, left Energy Impact Partners and have since then been working on CTVC full-time. So behind the scenes, we haven't shared it yet super publicly. We'll have some exciting announcements, hopefully at the start of the new year, but expanding the newsletter more broadly into deeper research analytics and market intelligence for the new climate economy, as we call it. Well, congratulations on that transition and taking the big jump. And that's really exciting and really is a testament to what you've been building at CTVC. And I have to say, the amount and quality of the research you've assembled through CTVC is really impressive. And you've clearly come a long way from where you started as just a newsletter. The website now has several different reports, different tools, a ton of information. And I saw that's also no longer just your co-founder, Sophie, and you, but it looks like you've built a team of nearly a couple dozen others. So how is this all being sustained? Is everyone just volunteering or are you generating revenue through your research and insights in some way? And maybe this is some of what you might not yet be able to announce, but curious what you've been able to do so far. We like to joke at CTVC, we have built the newsletter so far as a passionate side hustle. So for the most part, it's been really supported by an incredible team of interns and volunteers, people who are, you know, right now kind of researching and and studying the space in their current jobs or working on full-time opportunities soon. So really excited to, to have that team behind us. I think as time goes on, we've been really kind of diligent about how we want to build a scalable revenue model around CTVC. So I think for for us, starting the newsletter, it was never intended to be a business. It was never intended to be some sort of like PL. The genesis of it really was to always be this public resource. And so we could have easily gone down the road of, you know, Substack, putting parts of it behind the paywall, putting some of the more like research, feature heavy content behind the paywall. But it just went against our core mission, which is really accelerating the space and also allowing people who are kind of looking to get into it to be able to access and read it. And then selfishly from a from a business perspective, there's only so much scale really, a $10, $20 a month kind of newsletter can get to. There's also the other path of, of sponsorships on the media side as well, which we explored, which again is an interesting revenue model. I think there also reaches a certain type of threshold. And so we've been pretty diligent on like how we want to expand the newsletter and what the overall direction should be. Which is why when when I was thinking a lot about um, what it does it look like to scale CTVC full time, what's the right revenue and, and business model to put around that, I started thinking a lot about what the white space in the market is. And I realized the reason that people are reading and coming to CTVC isn't just because they want to see cool emojis in a newsletter or because necessarily they just want to hear about the news and headlines in the ecosystem. That's part of it. But they're really coming to us for that research, those insights, that data and analytics that you can't necessarily get from, you know, any sort of other newsletters. And that's where we want to really invest in the business and go forward in the future as more investors and corporates and financial institutions are not only starting new funds and committing capital into the space, but also committing their fundamental businesses to decarbonization. We think there's a massive opportunity to provide better information, more transparent information, data and research into not only, you know, where everything's headed, but tracking in real time, who's doing what, and how do we actually get to these net zero commitments? How do we actually find interesting, climate impactful, but also returns impactful opportunities in climate tech, whether that's in things like 
carbon removal or things like hydrogen, battery recycling? How do we almost act like the Gartner in a way for climate tech, where we're starting to track in real time what's happening in the ecosystem through the newsletter, but then in the future through a more broader market intelligence platform. And that's really where the future of this is all headed. So I guess general call to action for any investors or financial institutions or or corporates too who are thinking a lot about this would love to generally chat and hear more about where their pain points are. We're actually launching a initial launch partners program starting the new year, which we won't have open publicly, but we'll start to kind of share more on as as time goes on. But that's really the the genesis, I think, of the next 2.0 phase is building more in the information and insights space. Very cool. And so I would guess that those launch partners, are those to be able to sponsor and create publicly facing reports? Or is it more that you would work behind the scenes and do research that's particularly useful, but held privately by those partners? It'll be more so research and and insights and data that's held privately. On occasion, we would share some of it publicly through the newsletter as well. So think you're kind of like freemium and enterprise model, but this allows us to continue Mm building and running the newsletter for free and continue to put out really great content and research in a way where we don't have to put individual subscriptions behind a paywall or have to rely necessarily on on sponsorships as well. So that's, I think, the exciting kind of dual model we're, we're working towards where we can help inform enterprise sort of stakeholders as well in a much deeper level past just what we're already doing with the newsletter. Great. Enterprise partners, but will the emojis remain? The emojis will remain. That is a core part of the brand. Okay, fantastic. So let's turn to some of the insights that you've been learning by really being at the center of climate tech investing and both as an investor in recent years, as well as by running CTVC. I think a first thing to ground on is just the context uh, for talking about climate tech venture capital. And that's, of course, growth. So let's start with that context and tell us about 2020 and 2021 in particular, how would you characterize the scale and growth in, in climate tech venture investing? Yeah, I mean, we we track this stuff really, really closely. So on a week-by-week basis, on a day-by-day basis, we're tracking all of the deals and funding and climate tech. And every half a year, we'll, we'll aggregate that into a mid-year or, or annual report. 2021 really saw a peak in venture funding into climate tech. So we saw a peak of 40% billion dollars, which is pretty staggering relative to the market before the 2020 kind of start of climate tech. Since then, even though there's been the general market slowdown, and I think that's particularly hit venture and other general industries, other general sectors like crypto, for example, we've seen the amount of activity. So the number of deals in climate tech actually increase in the first half of 2022. So we saw a 15% increase in deals and then a relative kind of decrease in the amount of funding going into the space relative to the back half of 2021. But overall, seeing still a ton of interest in early stage climate activity. So deals in the seed and series A stage, seeing a very big pickup in funding interest to verticals like climate management risk and intelligence. So solutions that are better helping to monitor where emissions line, corporate supply chains, helping them manage it, corporate offsetting, as well as a significant eight times pickup in funding into the carbon vertical. So I think the world too is waking up to the fact that mitigation is core to climate tech, but now we're also starting to think about more solutions on the carbon removal side and carbon management side. How do we deal with all the existing carbon that's in our atmosphere past just a lot of the kind of forward-looking mitigation and decarbonization efforts we also need to do. 
Kim, let's zoom into the numbers a bit more and just really understand the, the markets. And we talked a bit about how climate tech is different than the previous era of clean tech. Part of that is that it's not just about uh, energy companies, but all the companies related to decarbonization of our entire economy. So break this down for us. What are the different spaces within climate tech that you're tracking? And when it comes to investment activity, which have seen the most dollars invested in recent years? We have a very built up taxonomy, but generally starting from the top down, we classify climate as really a theme, not an industry. So it's challenging sometimes when you say climate tech, because it's not just energy, it's not just, you know, carbon, but it's really a theme across multiple different industries. So very quickly, we usually apply this mental model, this framework. The first is you have to understand it. So it's not just about mitigation and decarbonization, but you actually have to understand how, you know, existing emissions or the climate crisis is affecting certain risks in our economy. And that falls within our climate management buckets, things like using earth observation tools like satellites, remote sensing to better understand how these emissions and and risks are playing out. Then there's the second kind of level of once you understand it, we can actually start to mitigate or decarbonize. And so those are the five core sources of emissions that drive our economy today. That's energy, food and land use, transportation, the built environment and industrial sources of emission. And so within that, those are the areas where, you know, renewables, energy storage, electric vehicles, decarbonizing steel and cement, et cetera, play a really significant role. And then finally, it's the bucket of how do we deal with it? How do we adapt or deal with an already kind of changing environment? And within that, we have kind of the carbon removal, carbon management bucket as well. So those are the core seven verticals in in which we look at climate tech. Obviously, there's different solutions that can fall within all of that. Historically, we found that the majority of funding has fallen within the transportation, energy, food and land use buckets. So those have accounted for about 60% of number of climate companies and about 80% of total dollars deployed. So over the last three years, we've tracked about $70 billion of funding in this space, and about 80% of dollars deployed are in energy, food, and land use, and transportation. And the reality is, that is where a significant amount of emissions in our economy lie, but sectors specifically like industrials and the built environment, which make up the second or third largest lever of emissions in our economy, are historically underinvested and underinnovated in. So within our kind of like ranking of which sectors have gotten the most funding, Industry and built environment typically are a lot more nascent. So over the last, you know, two years, we've tracked about $6 billion going into funding industrial solutions versus $27 billion going into funding transportation, with a lot of that going towards things like batteries and, you know, EV manufacturing, but just the reality of where there's definitely a bit of a mismatch between where sources of emissions may lie and funding and innovation interest from the earlier stage community. Yeah, that mismatch is is fascinating. And I've been thinking a bit recently about the built environment opportunity, where 40% of emissions come from buildings and the built environment, 40% of energy use. Uh, And it's interesting, because when we get into a car, we might think about whether it's a gas car, electric car, and the emissions, the impact when we walk into a building, we don't have that sort of perception or cognition of how that building is impacting the environment. Uh, but it often is polluting and often is a, a big opportunity for innovation. Historically, the way we've tracked built environment it has been one of the most under 
invested and underfunded. We've tracked about $2 billion of funding that have gone into that space with the strong caveat that a lot of this is overlapping, right? So the electrons that go into keeping the lights on in a building can also be classified within the energy bucket as well. Or the steel, cement that goes into building buildings can also be classified as industrials as well. But for the most part, we're seeing actually a significant pickup of interest, both from a quantitative perspective, but also anecdotally in the built environment, especially in home electrification and building electrification, given the kind of goodie bag of incentives and and rebates that the IRA has recently unleashed into the market. So from a very early stage, seeing a lot of different pre-seed, seed plays and getting creative in, in home electrification past just, you know, we need better energy efficiency tools, but how do we actually bring to bear better marketplaces and lower barriers to entry for home electrification, for heat pumps, for HVAC contractor. So starting to see a lot more innovation there as well. Quick shout out that a recent episode, we had Ari from Rewiring America. So if you're interested in home electrification, uh, that's a great episode. And a while back, we had an episode with Christian from 2150, uh, a climate tech firm focused on built environments and perhaps more to come. Uh, definitely an interesting space to be to be tracking. Kim, in addition to looking at the companies that are getting invested, and you're, of course, also tracking who's doing the investing. And so I'm curious where that investment's coming from. What types of firms are investing in climate and, and how has that been changing in recent years? So we very closely track all the investors that are participating in the climate ecosystem. One interesting statistic that we've been tracking is investment firms that have participated in at least one climate deal over the last two years, as well as investment firms who have participated in at least five climate tech deals in the last two years. And so you can start to differentiate between the really active climate investors, those that have probably, you know, have an experienced cohort who have been investing historically since Clean Tech 1.0 or have a dedicated climate fund, as well as those who are kind of dipping their toes in the water and starting to gain more interest. Historically, we've seen that majority of these, what we call, you know, Tourist climate investors, those who have participated in one or so deals, have started off in the food and land use sector. So areas where it's a bit easier from a you know tangible and, and consumer perspective to actually understand these companies, understand these opportunities. So if you think back to the pandemic, when we're only thing we can really get excited about is, is opening the fridge and, and seeing what you're putting into your body, it makes it a lot easier, I think, for investors to kind of get comfort with things like alternative protein and cellular plant-based foods. So we've seen 800 plus different investors participate in at least one climate tech deal there with the lowest number of what we call those active climate investors, part of those deals. Whereas all the way on the right-hand side, we see about less than 200 investors actively participating in the carbon vertical. So solutions in carbon removal, carbon management, better ratings and verification tools with the percent of active climate investors there looking more like 55%. So the pretty large takeaway there is climate tech is a very diverse ecosystem where we have different types of investors playing in different parts of that ecosystem. But I think some of those more nascent sectors that require more technical and industry expertise, things like the built environment, things like carbon removal, historically have seen a more concentrated cohort of investors, such as the breakthroughs, the lower carbons of the world that are that have the scientific expertise in-house to evaluate and diligence those types of companies. What about corporate VCs? How has corporate interest in climate investing been changing over recent years? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And one we're getting more often as well. We did actually write a feature on corporate VCs, I think in 2021, it's called the Corporate Climate Venturing. And we have a running list of corporate VCs that we're tracking on our website as well, which um, we actually should continue to update because there's been a lot more new fund announcements from corporates. Saudi Aramco just announced a big $1.5 billion fund to specifically invest in sustainability. So there's a lot more traction there. Uh, I was actually just in Houston for the Greentown Lab Summit, which historically Houston has been seen kind of like the oil and gas center, uh, where a lot of these big ONG majors have historically sat. It is pretty energizing, I think, to see a Greentown Labs get built in the first place and, and have all these incredible sponsors. And then B, just the amount of activity and interest from a lot of these more traditional energy companies and, and their venture funds that were actively participating in this summit. We did a small roadshow as well the next day where we went from two kind of early stage climate tech companies. So we saw the labs of Syzygy Plasmonics and some Vita Factory and then ended at the Shell chemical plant, which at first glance, you're kind of like, it seems like a bit of a contrasting picture. But in reality, the majority of these climate tech solutions, especially those set in you know the physical world that are building physical electrons or, or, or physical uh, molecules, they will need to, at some point, pass through an ecosystem such as Houston. They will need to scale commercially to something that looks like the Shell chemical plant. And so I think there's a really kind of important missing link there that corporates and corporate VCs will need to continue to play is especially in the scale up period past the seed and series A stage, as these companies are starting to, you know, get to pilot or demonstration phase and, and needing to have corporate offtake agreements or corporate partners to actually build the thing. These are really important ecosystems and resources that I think will need to play a part in scaling climate tech. And they're also a really important lever in the climate capital stack too. If you look at a lot of the Series B, Series C kind of growth stage deals, majority of those investors are actually strategics because they're core partners in helping, you know, build up or helping kind of pilot a lot of these initial climate tech technologies. Fantastic. So we have a picture of an incredibly hot investment space growing faster than the overall venture market by a long shot. Along comes 2022 with the war in Ukraine, inflation, near constant fear of recession. And there's an overall slowdown, but climate tech continues to grow, which is exciting. But another thing that happens that is remarkable in 2022, which was the historic climate legislation, notably the Inflation Reduction Act. I know this is an impossibly large question, but I'm sure you'll still have some helpful insights. How would you describe the impact of the IRA on climate tech companies and climate tech investing overall? IRA is this landmark legislation, but even before that, we had two really important pieces of legislation that, that really helped set the scene for climate tech and, and where we're headed in general. So first we had the bipartisan infrastructure plan, $98 billion that was laid out for climate demonstration projects and infrastructure. So we can think of this as almost like the backbone, right? So this is funding the infrastructure, the things that need to get deployed, a, a whole pool of capital there available for funding better and cleaner infrastructure. And then we have the CHIPS or the Science Act, which I think RMI classified that as the brain. So $54 billion in funding for R&D, a lot of which uh, overlays into climate tech as well. And then finally, now we have the Inflation Reduction Act. So we have the brain, we have the backbone. What we're missing now is the engine. And so that's really what the IRA does is it's this engine, this driver of $370 billion that's not only going towards funding this thing, but it's actually making everything economical. 
So it's done through mostly carrots, not sticks, funding and tax credits and incentives to not just, you know, increase the amount of capital going into the space, but actually make all these technologies economical. And so we put together this analysis on illustrative analysis on how the IRA and some of the tax major kind of tax credits and incentives that they announced would affect the costs of climate technology. And we all know that, you know, the PTC and ITC had a very significant impact on driving down solar and wind costs. Now what the IRA does is basically allow that same cost curve trajectory for technologies across the kind of climate tech stack. So everything from tax credits for for hydrogen up to $3 per kilogram, which is really, really incredible. Some some may say it's a bit too targeted towards hydrogen, given the fact that, you know, green hydrogen and some of these really kind of low emissions production pathways for, for hydrogen are immediately in the money. With that $3 per kilogram tax credit, there's now incentives for carbon capture, not just point source CCS, but also direct air capture at almost $880 a ton. And what's interesting there too, is it's not just, um, you know, tax credits, but that actually allows for upfront direct pay for these credits generated in the first five years of operation. So you don't have to wait for some tax rebate to hit your kind of balance sheet. And then also a lot for not just, you know, these big industrial Buildouts of renewables and, and direct air capture and things of that sort, but also at the consumer level. So it also helps make it economical for, for you and me, for individuals, people who are looking to electrify their homes. I think about a lot of kind of rebates going towards home energy retrofits, also for, for heat pumps as well, up to 1200 for home energy efficiency projects and 30% tax credits up to $2,000 for heat pumps. And then for EVs as well with the 7,500 tax credit. So I think overall, if you look across all the different technologies that we need to get to net zero, the IRA at least makes majority of those in the money, in the green, so to speak. And so we've had both positive and negative macro factors this year, netting out to overall still growth in, in climate tech investing. What does it mean for valuations? Have companies been taking down rounds and have valuations been falling dramatically since uh, last year's peak? It's interesting who you ask. So anecdotally, we've heard a lot that in that growth stage, in the kind of like series B plus stage, that stage of companies typically feel the impacts of the market slowdown the most in the most near term. It kind of bifurcates too, I think, to the kind of like stage of traction that you're in as well. So in addition to those growth stage companies and growth stage deals, I personally think it'll be a bit challenging for for some of the really kind of that cohort of exciting, harder tech, deeper tech companies and climate that raised in the last few years to raise much larger kind of series B or series C round this time around, just given the market has turned from kind of like their risk appetite has lowered and, and has really been more focused on on cash flow. And it's just challenging for a lot of these hard tech plays to to get to the right metric sets that traditional investors will look to at the Series B or Series C stage. So I think there anecdotally have heard it's been a bit challenging, maybe not down rounds per se, but at least spot rounds or, or bridge rounds to kind of get through that initial hump. At the seed and series A stage, we're still seeing a significant amount of interest, investor interest. I'd say valuations have decreased anecdotally, probably 10 to 20% across the board. But at least for those, you know, really high quality founders, really kind of repeat experienced founders and operators, there's still almost the same level of interest at the early stage as, as there were before. 
So generally, I think relative to other sectors outside of climate tech, investors and, and uh, customers across the board are, are seeing the opportunity generated in, in decarbonization and the net zero transition past just this hopefully one to two years market slowdown, but seeing it really as that, you know, 10 to 20 to, to 30 year opportunity. And that's what venture is building to at the end of the day, it's building for that massive market opportunity. And I think, especially at the early stage where there's a significant timeline to continue to build on now is a better time than ever to get into these companies and deals because a, there's the kind of policy tailwinds of the IRA B you're getting a better deal than you were a year ago, just from a term standpoint, you're getting in at a better valuation and C we're just seeing a significant inflow of talent too coming into this space. So talent, both in terms of the, you know, really hard tech, hard science space, organizations like Activate that are expanding past just Berkeley to New York and Boston and bringing more incredible, you know, scientific and academic talent to build in climate tech, as well as the traditional Silicon Valley types who are previously building in social media or, you know, e-commerce and cybersecurity now really looking to build in climate. I was just part of this Converge event that my friend Sanjeev at Day One Ventures organized he was the co-founder of ClassPass, then the chief product officer of Arcadia, and now a venture partner at Day One Ventures. And the whole premise of this event is how do we bring product managers, but also just people generally across tech into the folds of climate tech in a way where they don't necessarily have to build or found companies in this space, but at least have that stepping stone into what are the different opportunities where they can bring their skill sets in software, product management, marketing to be part of the you know climate tech wave and ocean, so to speak. I love the perspective that given this being a 20, 30 year opportunity, that it's still a great time to be getting into the action. And one of the things that has really helped climate tech investing continue amidst the economic slowdown is the abundance of dry powder. That is capital that's already been raised by funds with a need to be deployed. So I'm still hearing really every week about existing funds or newcomers raising additional climate capital. Do you have any sense of the state of fundraising activity for the funds themselves? Is the overall availability of capital continuing to grow and at what rate relative to what you've seen in the past? Yeah, we're tracking really closely the new fund announcements, both on the early stage venture side, as well as on even some of the later stage infrastructure side. So in the last few years, we've seen really significant announcements from BlackRock and Temasek with the launch of decarbonization partners, TPG's Climate Rise Fund, Brookfield's decarbonization fund as well. And so there's increasingly that stack of growth and private equity capital that's looking to not just fund solar and wind, but actually fund decarbonization and, and fund climate tech at scale. And that's a really important stack of capital that we need to continue growing in order to meet the demand of, of this initial cohort of climate tech companies that started at the beginning of you know 2019, 2020, raising capital. We need that cohort of downstream growth capital to really bring these types of companies across that inflection point, across that valley of death. And I think more so than ever, we're starting to see funds wake up to the gap that is capital for that first of a kind kind of project finance. So firms like Breakthrough Catalyst that have announced, the Department of Energy just launched their Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations. That has historically been a very challenging stack of part of the capital stack to fund, just given the risk and return ratio. So also starting to see more creative mechanisms 
to not necessarily just fund the projects themselves, but actually create a vehicle for funding corporate offtake or, or customer interest. So like Frontier's advanced market commitments or Terrasat's uh, a new philanthropic fund trying to galvanize philanthropic dollars or corporate dollars to fund eventual, you know, offtake for these projects so that carbon removal companies or, you know, earlier stage climate tech companies can actually build these technologies, build these projects without having to raise a ton of venture capital and get diluted along the way. So I think over the last, you know, few months to over the next few years or so, will be interesting to see how what we're calling creative stack of capital continues to play out, especially to fill that first of a kind project financing sort of white space in the existing stack. But generally, we've seen about 100 new climate venture and growth stage investment funds announced over the last 12 months. And then given the time it takes to raise these sort of investing vehicles, would note that they are lagging indicators in a lot of ways. They've probably started fundraising six months to a year from now. So TBD, exactly how that spur of, of new funds continues as, as the you know recession kind of worsens. But generally, as we've been tracking these venture funds, we've run a very illustrative analysis on the amount of dry powder that's been only generated from these new fund announcements. So this doesn't even count historical funds. And so far, we've tracked about $24 billion of capital total announced from these funds. And then if you assume some sort of consistent kind of deployment period over two and a half years or over 10 quarters, that amounts to about $20 billion of capital that's available, notwithstanding some of the more recent funds that have announced as well. So generally, there is what we call a healthy kind of uh, stack of, of dry powder to, to weather the cold spell, but would also caveat there might be a slowdown in, in fundraising as well as a slowdown in the rate of deployment from two and a half years to maybe four or five years, given the existing market today. Well, we've spoken a lot about what we've seen to date. Let's set our sights for a few minutes uh, to what lays ahead. You know, for all the emerging climate tech categories, we, of course, would like to see constant growth and fast constant growth, not just in investment, but also in market adoption. You spoke briefly before about alternative protein. I noted that almost 10% um, percent of the companies that received investments in the first half of 2022 were alternative protein companies. And the success of companies like Beyond Meat, Impossible, Oatly and many others have made alternative protein really a regular part of many people's diets and changed the perception of this category in, a, in an exciting way. And then all of a sudden, in September, sales for refrigerated meats alternatives suddenly dropped by 10%, and people are freaking out. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, the narrative has ended. These, And I think it's representative, not just of this one category, but longer-term overall trends of market adoption for tech and particularly sustainable new tech. Are you concerned about this category? And also, what do bumps in the road like this mean to you as you think about a long-term transition to sustainable protein or just climate tech overall? I mean, if you want to hear my personal hot take on alternative protein, which might piss off some of the alternative protein investors, I think that entire sector is very overhyped. It's the obvious one to fund because, and okay, this is my hot take in general, I think, about why we see so much funding in things like alternative protein and EVs and batteries. It's because investors are willing to go where there's precedence, where there's precedence in the public markets, which which makes sense. That's not surprising. So if you see companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat go public, if you see companies like Tesla go public or you know QuantumScape and all these battery SPACs go public, it's a lot easier to make the case to your investment committee to invest in these sectors because you have public comps and you can point to successful outcomes and exits. But then it leads to 
this massive influx of early stage funding towards very similar solutions, very similar kind of outputs. Um, and I think that also drives a lot of the mismatch in, in funding and some of the areas that are underinvested. So personally, I feel like I'm not surprised that there's been a decrease in, in alternative protein interest generally. I don't think this spells any sort of I don't think this is a leading indicator that there's at least like a, a, a change in, in consumer behavior or change in consumer tailwinds for wanting to adopt more sustainable practices or treat you know the climate crisis as, as something that's top of mind. I think across the board for employees, for consumers, sustainability and, and the climate crisis and, and voters as well now with the midterms coming up is consistently as on the top kind of one, two, three priority list. But I don't know, specifically for alternative proteins, maybe people got fed up with the taste or something. You have this amazing ability to read my notes on my screen because my next question was about the midterms. And of course, impossible to see the future, but we're recording this on November 7th. Tomorrow are the midterm elections here in the US. Do you expect the midterms to be influential to climate tech investing? And should we expect a full report from CTVC in the, in the coming weeks about the impact of, of the election? Maybe. Unfortunately, or fortunately, maybe we don't get too political because it's not my forte and I'll just be saying stuff I don't know. But I think what's fortunate is we we seem to have gotten a good amount of, not everything, but we got a healthy amount of legislation for climate tech passed before the midterms. So I feel I feel pretty good about that. I think generally all signs point to Congress being a, a bit more challenging of a environment to, to get climate-focused legislation passed through over the next two years. So not too optimistic about where the future holds there, but I am optimistic about focusing on what we've gotten so far, focusing on the IRA, focus on the incredible amount of funding that DOE and the LPO have. And I think now it's more a question of how do we ensure that we're executing on what we've been given really well versus continuing to hold out for for more kind of legislation and policies to be enacted in Congress. I think it's really now let's let's take what we've been given with the IRA. Let's ensure that these tax incentives are being allocated in the right way, funding's being allocated in the right way, that we're setting up the right right structures at the IRS level for technologies to be counted for these credits. I think those small details on the execution side will actually be really significant levers to how far down the cost curve these bills can enable. Kim, thank you so much. So great to have you on the show. Learned a lot and wishing you all the best of luck and can't wait for those announcements from CTVC next year. Thank you. So excited to be here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.